0: knows where it's going to go. We don't know how much supply we're going to lose of Russia. We don't know what Chinese demand is going to do. And then from like five, 10 years from now, we don't know how successful energy transition policies are going to be at reducing this overall level of demand. So, and all this to say that I think in this moment of kind of heightened volatility, heightened uncertainty in the market, I think it, it actually much of the puck lands at the feet of government here at trying to iron out some of the inevitable volatility that will be caused, because the volatility will be bad for everyone, oil companies, consumers, the broader economy. So I think the goal here is to try and smooth out that period of energy
1: transition. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged,
2: Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important, given where we are in the global economy and geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like, and we want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues, and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. So please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Harry Krisnan.
3: Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. My guest today uh, is Rory Johnston, founder of Commodity Context, a research firm based in Toronto, Canada. And it's a pleasure having you back on the show, Rory uh great to see you thanks so for having me back harry so i think last time we talked i threw out some ideas and said either yay or nay debunk or agree and so we've covered that that side of things but today i thought we would focus a little bit on two topics the main one being the uh spr the strategic petroleum reserve and the second one being um looking at positioning and possibly ways to implement trades based on some of the ideas you have. Mm-hmm. So uh, why don't we start with the SPR? Uh, maybe you can explain what it is, what its history is, and uh, why it's talked about quite a bit nowadays.
0: Yeah. So, you know, when we're talking about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve or Strategic Petroleum Reserves, uh, more generally, there are lots across the world, lots of different governments hold these in different ways. But when we say, you know, capital TH, you know, capital the SPR, we're talking about the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is a very, very large pile and stockpile of crude oil uh, based mostly, you know, in and around the U.S. Gulf Coast at four major locations. At the beginning of 2020, uh, you were sitting at, in the reserve, about 650 million barrels of oil. So this is a very, very large pool of crude. Um, and over the, over the last couple years, uh, due to a combination of congressionally mandated sales, which is something I'll get back to in a second, uh, but combined with uh, last year's you know, the Biden administration's unprecedentedly large release from the SPR, we're now sitting at about 370 or so million barrels. So down from 650 to 370. So a huge kind of drawdown in the reserve, by far the largest in history. And I think there's, you know, there's been a lot of debate that's come around this, which is, you know, there's already a lot of debate in the oil market generally. Uh, And when oil market policy plays in, it's always kind of, you know, it's even more heated in debate and I think with the SPR, it's just such a it's such a discreet and kind of crystallized moment and kind of mechanism for this for this policy debate that, you know, everyone's been talking about in the industry, whether or not it's good, it's bad, it's, you know, it's short sighted or whatever. So I think, you know, my goal here is to kind of describe what it is, uh, what it was historically and kind of how. I've been, and you know, myself and a couple others have been trying to, you know, re-envision how the SPR can be used in, like, a, in, like, a modern oil market because I think the oil market has trained has changed substantially from when it was initially um, kind of conceived in the late '70s, early '80s as kind of a um, you know response to the dual oil crises first. The uh, first the Arab uh embargo and then the Iranian Revolution. So those combinations really kind of put um, energy and oil security front and center. And this and the SPR was initially kind of conceived as you know the ultimate uh, defensive weapon and that kind of that kind of new um, that new kind new kind of battlefield essentially. Uh, but I think that people because of the use of strategic because of the, because of its history, they view it as this you know final line of defense, this final kind of, you know, once the enemy is at the gates or breached to the gates, that is when we will finally release the might of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And I think that's actually a very ill-conceived and simplistic understanding of the potential and promise of this tremendously unique asset in the market.
3: Okay. A couple of questions there. If this is kind of the uh, supply of lost resort, which is one of the interpretations of the SPR. Why is it mainly crude that's held in the SPR? Why aren't refined products held, which would be necessary in the event of an extreme uh, um, situation?
0: Yeah, so I think one thing, again, is important to remember, the initial history of it, where, you know, the U.S. has always had a tremendous amount of refining capacity, but hasn't, you know, particularly around, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, there were lots of worries about crude supply. Uh, so there's a couple, you know, one, you know, crude was the main concern. So that is what they put in there at the time. Um, it's also crude is also much more stable to hold. You know, crude exists in holes in the ground naturally. Most of the SPR is actually stored in in like artificial salt caverns. So essentially artificially created, um, you know, reservoirs of crude uh, that just wouldn't hold petroleum products in the same way. I mean, as an example, you know, gasoline vaporizes, right? Like, like you know, you always hear how you shouldn't leave your gas can, you know, in a concealed garage open because it's going to like, you know, build up gasoline fumes and that can explode. Um, that would be very bad in, a strategic, in, in any kind of strategic reserve. So you definitely, you know, crude is just much easier, and more stable to store. And it's it's uh, stored, again, in and around the Gulf Coast, right around the major refining centers in the United States. So it's, it's designed specifically to be able to feed into those refineries very, very, very quickly. Um, the other thing I should say is, while it was initially conceived of as this kind of like final line of like almost military-esque defense, and I think that's, again, how many people have Still understood it to this day. There have only been a couple moments where it's been released in that kind of um, kind of uh, you know under those auspices. You know, think about you know so, you know summon, a summoner around the Iraq War. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas most of the moments that it's actually been released have been in response to things like uh, Gulf Coast hurricanes. So you would release some crude. You know, uh, you know, in the Gulf. Let's say because a bunch of platforms were were taken offline. It, you know, uh, offshore oil production platforms. Because of uh, because of a hurricane, so I think that's how it's historically generally been used.
3: So if I drove drove my car down to one of these locations, let's say Bayou Choctaw, uh, which uh, a name that caught my attention, what would I see there? Would there be any security around it? Would it would it pl- look like something that is a uh, military complex or no?
0: I think it it looks, you know, to my mind, more like an oil complex. Uh, that it that it, it's generally something. It, it kind of it's you know it's a bunch of pipes and tanks in the ground um, and designed specifically to kind of you know handle the logistics of getting oil out of these reservoirs um, and then onto ships, essentially for for kind of export or for kind of shuttling down to the you know um, you know the the water side um, refineries all along the U.S. Gulf Coast.
3: Okay. That, that's a great, great intro. Now, it seems to me like we can make a bunch of divisions along the, uh, the decision tree, for lack of a better phrase. One of them is um, con- congressional mandated releases versus um, politically or war related releases, uh, which are at least until 2022 were much less frequent. Uh, if you could say something about how the two are different functionally, that would be useful.
0: Yeah. And I think there's, you know, there's a couple of different ways that things can get released from the SPR. There are exchanges, there are emergency releases, and then there's these congressionally mandated sales. But so I think for the purposes of this discussion, it's easy to just bifurcate it down the middle. Basically, is the president deciding to do it himself or herself, or, uh, or is it Congress that's mandating these releases? And I think the latter, these congressionally mandated releases, are in my personal opinion, the worst possible use of the Shruchu Petroleum Reserve, because again, it's a very, very unique asset and we'll get into all the ways it can be used in interesting ways. Uh, But I think Congress often looks at this massive pile of crude in the ground, particularly when prices are high, and thinks money. It thinks this is a good way of kind of papering over some holes in the budget, get some discretionary spending capacity, sell it down. And that's what you've actually seen. You know, hundreds of millions of barrels were mandated for sale between kind of, you know, late uh, 2010s into, you know, right through the end of the decade. Um, A lot of those have been recently um, actually canceled uh, because, you know, very interesting way they did it was they basically said, okay, let's assume that all of those, you know, all of the emergency release of last year, let's assume that was actually a congressionally mandated release and just transfer us the money instead. Um, so that essentially canceled a bunch of that future um, purchases, I believe from 2020, uh, you know, end of 2020, you know, 2024 to 2027, I think it was like something like a hundred something million barrels. Um, that uh, is good. Because it's, it, it's good to not need to release it. Because when you need to release on a schedule, you're releasing this crude into a market, you know, agnostic of market conditions. And I think at a very, very base level, what the SPR should be doing is acting as a bit of a residual buffer or a battery on the market. Uh, and we were talking, uh, you know, in terms of last resort, when the market is super, super, super tight, when you're in ultra or super backwardation, there should be releases from the reserve. And when the market is super, super loose, there should be buying for the reserve. And I think there are a bunch of reasons, both from kind of a trading mentality and an attempt to kind of optimize the profitability of the reserve. But I think more broadly, because the, the reserve is a government kind of function, I think you can look beyond the pure PL motive and say, well, it can also be used as, as a stabilizing force that... Typically, when you go into super backwardation or super contango, it's because the commercial side of the market has essentially tapped out all of its kind of operational capacity in this area. So as an example, one, I think a mistake that the SPR made in 2020, it actually did buy a little bit of crude at the very, very bottom of the market. But that is the moment in, you know, March, April, May of 2020, when prices were very briefly negative for WTI. That is when the SPR should have been buying in size. Every single barrel it possibly could have gotten a hold of, and we didn't and we didn't see that because part of the challenge of the SPR is y- you have this reality of this really unique strategic operational oil market asset, and then it's also very very political. So you had a lot of particularly democratic pushback against buying oil because it was seen as essentially a subsidy to the oil market. I think this what we're going to see continually <laughs> through this discussion is I think bo- both sides of the aisle dislike uh, the SPR and and kind of using the SPR for different reasons, um, and I think ideally in a pure idealized future, the SPR would be made much more independent of political and particularly congressional meddling. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not delusional. I don't think we could ever imagine seeing it. You know, you know, a, a federal reserve of oil or something. But I think any incremental um, independence you can you can um, you can give to the SPR along with a kind of very uh, concrete mandate of you know, buy, when, uh, buy when, when markets are loose and sell when they're really, really tight and try and stabilize things. I think that would be a much better situation for the market.
3: Okay, okay, that, that's great. I'd like to break that down a bit. Uh, let's try and proceed by analogy. So if I'm a storage operator, if the futures price is way above the flat price or the spot price, um, I'm going to be buying physical and filling up my tanks and' um, I'll, so I'll store the physical and that gives me some time optionality. whereas if the futures minus the spot is pretty low, I'm going to be wanting to sell the physical and maybe buy forward. Now if I push down this analogy, that's where you so now you're saying that if the curve is backwardated basically you have that situ- the first situations. Uh, Sorry, you have the second situation, so you won't be selling physical into the market, but you're doing both sides of the duration trade. So why wouldn't the U.S. government think of it that way, or the U.S. Department of Energy, and say, we don't just want to sell oil, we want to do exchanges or loans where we're actually explicitly trading the forward curve? So they do actually also have physical exchanges, although I I don't
0: think that they're, I think that they're slightly more convoluted and and slightly less ideal in the situation. But I think you're exactly right. I think, you know, if you view it, so let's go through the commercial side first, because I think it's, you know, unlike a a purely financial asset, uh, the curve matters in this because there is uh, storage and logistical costs associated with storing crude, whether it's 10 cents or 50 cents a month in terms of, you know, the, the actual physical storage costs, the insurance, the financing, et cetera, all of that costs money. So that when, you know, you need the difference between spot and a future price, let's say in a contangoed market where the curve is upward sloping, you need that difference to be large enough to say, I'll buy it today. And then I'll sell it 12 months in the future and lock in an arbitrage kind of profit in the reverse, the, the, in a backward aided market, it's, it's more difficult to do it. Think of it in the same way, because you know, you would essentially be selling into spot markets and then buying into the future and kind of flipping it the other way, which is, I think, what we've seen last year for the SPR is very much, I think, what the idea was.
3: But one thing I thought with the exchanges, basically there are agreements whereby oil is sold, barrels are sold from the SPR, let's say N barrels are sold, and then more than N barrels will be received at some point in the future at specified dates. So isn't that safer from the standpoint of security and so on? Because there is some guarantee that the oil will be restocked at a profit. Why take the risk? Why take the risk as has been done in 2022, let's say, of just selling, uh, just making straightforward sales and assuming that price risk in terms of trying to buy back the barrels of oil in the future? I mean, do you have a view on this? Yeah, definitely. I definitely
0: have a view on it. I think the so I think there's a couple of things here. The first is the actual kind of the SPR wasn't designed to be as nimble as we're discussing, first of all. And so I think part, part of what, what much of what we're trying to do in this discussion, I think the broader discussion of the SPR over the past year and a half has been trying to inject a little novelty into how we think about the SPR. So up until very recently, the the SPR couldn't even really sell forward. Um, or buy forward. It was all essentially spot transactions. So what they would do is they would do a uh, a sale or a purchase on an indexed basis. So you would agree to it, let's say today, and you would take possession or, 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 or you would sell possession of the crude in, let's say, a month or two. But the price agreed to at sale is indexed to spot prices. So you would essentially just agree to it, and then you would converge on spot you know, in the future. Now that's obviously not ideal if you're trying to play any of these angles of the market. So what they actually do is actually to do change the, um, the actual regulatory structure of how the SPR can operate in the market. And what they've introduced is this idea of, you know, fixed forward contract buying, where you would fix the price and say, you know, we will buy it, you know, let's say in two months at, you know, sixty-five dollars, or you know, and th- you know, we'll sell it in four months for eighty dollars, or whatever else. That wasn't really historically done before, and I think that, in and of itself, was a big kind of novel government and regulatory change. Um, that said, it didn't happen, in my humble opinion, fast enough because by the time that that was agreed upon, most of the crude was already sold from the reserve. In my idealized world. You would pair every single barrel of sale from the SPR with a forward contract purchase. And the idea here is that, so when when you think about the reason that people take issue with sales of the SPR in the first place, if we just kind of consider the arguments against it, it's that you are, it's essentially a sugar high, right? That you're saying, okay, sure, you can fix the market now, but you're not fixing any of the problems down the road. You're just kind of pushing them off. Now, what we ended up realizing in hindsight last year was it actually wasn't as big a challenge, a, a big, uh, a market issue as we expected, you know, now the SPR sale is done and we're still lingering around kind of 80 bucks Brent. The market is kind of, you know, not nearly as tight as we were expecting, but in the beginning of, of, of you know, 2022 in March and April, when this was conceived, uh, we thought we were going to be staring down, you know, mega all-time large deficits in the market off of massive losses of Russian supplies. So the the challenge and and the problem with kind of big sales in that kind of environment theoretically is that you are reducing prices today and you're reducing incentive for investment in other let's say non-OPEC non-Russian production to come in and fix that that issue right now so that's that's the criticism is that it reduces incentives and it reduces our kind of security buffer
3: for kind of dealing with the next the next oil shock after this one You mentioned something in there that I'm a little confused about, I'm sure you know it better than I do, which is, I understand that the goal is in a very tight backwardated market to increase supply, but is the secondary goal actually to put downward pressure on the price to have market impact that's significant? Or is that just a um, hopeful byproduct of, of the sales?
0: Well, so if you, I mean, I think we're, you know, are we talking about it in a commercial market or in the kind of SPR release kind of market?
3: SPR release here.
0: So I think in the, in a pure, you know, historic view of the SPR, it's just to get prices down. Um, right, It's just to kind of bring the prices down, to soften the, the, the burden on consumers, to reduce the kind of stress on the U.S. economy. That was kind of how this was initially conceived. So that's how you would have seen it done during like a hurricane. You just release some crude to the market to make up for the crude that was lost in kind of production assets. But I think in this, in this situation, when you think about, so why, so last year we heard a lot about why producers weren't increasing production. Um part of it was that you know cash flow discipline all of these things we we discussed on our last call but more broadly another reason is that the curve was very 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 backwardated so you you know it was on one level screening stress and and kind of short supplies in the market but the other thing when you look at the way that oil equities are often priced, it's not off the spot price. It's off kind of a balance of the bulk of the curve, because it's an assumption of what the kind of, you know, forward cash flows of that company will be earning. Uh, And while everyone in the commodity market will tell you that the curve is not the quote, markets forecast for prices, equity analysts often treat it as the least biased kind of, you know, forecast for the market. So they'll just plug it into, plug it into models. And that's how you'll get your kind of, you know, equity valuation, you know, decisions. So What if you could do a situation where let's say you reduce the spot price, which is what hurts consumers, particularly in an environment like we saw last year and continuing into this year, where, you know, pump price uh, concerns were at the fore, inflationary concerns were at the fore. So you bring down spot prices, but at the same time, you lift the rest of the curve by more than you reduce
3: those spot prices. Well, it's one of the reasons for that, because then the market's saying that, well, there's less supply, so the SPR has less ammunition so to speak, at, at its disposal to do the same thing again.
0: Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's some aspects of that, but I I really don't think that the, you know, that the market, at least in my assessment and my research, I don't see the market as kind of, you know, looking through this. Because I think the physical, the physical commodity still needs to clear at the end of the day. So I view it to a degree as almost commensurate with, let's say, Saudi spare capacity, that it could be used. We don't know if it'll be used. Sure, there might be some kind of transient risk premium that's built into prices because of that. But in my research, at least, it doesn't appear durable or stable. Um, And it seems to be something that like only really matters, let's say, when markets get particularly tight again. And you're like, oh, wait, now we don't have Saudi spare capacity or we have less SPR or whatever.
3: Got it. I'll make a little digression here because I'm more a derivatives guy and more in financial assets. and. It used to be thought and all the quant models had it so that the short end of the yield curve drove the rest of the yield curve and the original models you know the spot interest rate models did that and so the yield curve was calibrated to the fronts and nowadays it seems like people have stopped believing that because the fed has been hiking away and nothing happens at the long end so it may be actually that the long end which is has been consistently deflationary in its outlook is driving the short end. It's, it's the more important economic thing. Now in the oil market, I'm gonna stretch myself, probably beyond my capabilities and say, could it not be the same thing? The oil derivatives market far exceeds in notional amounts the uh, you know the size of the spot market. And could it not be that the demand for hedging or speculative activity at the longer end or further out drives the short end which would make the any attempt by the SPR to dampen prices in the short end ultimately fruitless, because it's really the long end that drives the show. So I actually
0: think when you look at kind of the bulk of volume across the curve, it's very front heavy. So most of the activity in the market does happen at the front of the curve. But to your point, I actually think it's really interesting. And I would have historically told you the same thing that you know the fr- it's all driven by the front end and i actually have a really cool gif on one of my pieces i wrote about how i envision the the futures curve and it basically shows how it's kind of like the you know the you know the the fuzzy spider charts for rates it kind of shows that how you know the curve always anchors around spot and you kind of trade all across that you know over time and it flips around spot prices right so i think there's definitely something to that but i did a recent piece called you know basically titled along you know how do inventories drive oil prices and what I did was I decomposed the price and the curve into kind of two components. There is this kind of overall level of the curve, and then there's an overall level of backwardation or contango or calendar spread on top of that. And what I kind of, in the, in the piece, what I argued, and I would encourage everyone to kind of, uh, you know, sign into commodity context and check it out and give me some feedback. But essentially, that, you know, when that, that level of the curve, in my opinion, is driven by some kind of perception of the overall level of commercial inventories in the market. Because commercial inventories in the market are essentially your best metric for a cumulative uh, kind of function of supply and demand over time. That, you know, large deficits for a prolonged period of time reduce the level of inventories and vice versa. Um, And then on the flip side, contango or backwardation and calendar spread in the market is is based on the deviation of that from a shorter run um, kind of, you know, moving average. So it's your kind of sign of things going you know, tighter or looser, because the calendar spread will be ultimately what determines where the economic incentives for uh, inven- inventory flow to go are. But I think this is why I was saying that I don't believe that the market actually uses the SPR. In the so one thing that, and the reason I wrote the piece, a lot of people will just conflate commercial inventories and SPR. They're both crude, they're both in a hole, the same thing. So all the charts to show, you know, oh, look, with, with crude inventories, with the, the SPR included, Wow, we're at like really, really exceptionally low levels of crude. But when you look at commercial storage, we've actually been rising now for the past couple months uh, and things don't look nearly as dire, which I think actually matches what we're seeing in pricing far more. So I think it's this kind of, you know, once again, not to say that the market is never going to care about the SPR. I'm sure, it, you know, if it literally goes empty and then we end up in a crisis, yeah, then things can go pretty asymptotic pretty quickly. But I think in a normal functioning market like we're seeing right now, empirically to me, it does not appear that that matters all that much. Whereas you know what I do think you saw was the SPR being dumped into the market was being uh, kind of, you know digested by the market, not as inventories falling, but as fresh novel supply. And I think that's an important difference is that commercial inventories don't make discretionary choices generally. Commercial inventories are a residual function of supply and demand in the market whereas the SPR was basically unchanging for the majority of its history despite multiple bouts of exceptionally backwardated and exceptionally contangoed markets it never it never budged it needs to it can only budge by say so either of congress smashing it open for a piggy bank you know agnostic to market conditions or the president saying this is a national emergency like we saw last year release 180 last year, and I think there was 30 in the December, you know, December 2021. So that was a huge amount of crude. uh, At its peak, was actually you know producing or supplying to the market more than many OPEC plus members. So briefly, the SPR alone was one of the largest producers or suppliers of crude in the world. I think that's a more useful way of interpreting the effect of the SPR and market balance than viewing it as oh, okay, it's just inventory draining down because again, it doesn't drain down in almost any other Kind of tight market environment
3: got it so I, I understand that commercial inventory is ultimately more important but let's say that the there was an announcement made that the spr would restock its oil supplies at 70 bucks is there a a layup trade to be made there namely that sell puts struck at 20 at 70 or put stuff in the market that will benefit Uh, that will kind of push the price down into a range where uh, you're almost guaranteed to make money from a high frequency basis.
0: I mean, so far what we've seen, so so the U.S. administration, the Biden administration, has actually done that more or less that they've said that we're we're going to purchase crude for refill in the SPR when WTI is, and this is an important word, sustainably within a range of sixty-seven to seventy-two dollars WTI. So let's say it's seventy bucks for kind of you know for ease, um. And I think what you've seen generally, if you look at the chart of where oil prices have traded year to date, you really haven't got much below 70. Now, you could argue, like, is that because of this, like, you know, you know, Biden, you know, put on the market? Or is it just that that's where it would have gone anyways, uh, and it's coincidental? I think it's probably a bit of both. I think there are some aspects of the market that think, OK, well, we're just going to buy anytime it gets.
3: Now, I'm showing my ignorance here, but when the Biden administration said they would buy if the... Market was sustainably the WTI market was sustainably between sixty seven and seventy two whatever whatever the range was. Did they say the price that they would buy at, or did they just say they'd buy at the market? They would buy at the market in that kind of moment, and I think this is
0: you're getting at a very important, very important point. And I think what we've seen, I think there's a couple of different issues here between the the theory of the SPR and the practical function of the SPR, which again is fundamentally a government bureaucracy and isn't as nimble and hasn't evolved as quickly, I think, as this market has demanded. Uh, so what we saw, for instance, was the Biden administration actually did try, and DOE, Department of Energy, did try and refill uh, the SPR uh, at the end of last year into the beginning of this year, and they failed to get kind of the bids or the offers that were attractive enough uh, for that to kind of work. Um, and I think part of the challenge here is that this is very new territory for, for, the, for the DOE. They're not used to kind of dealing with something and being as quick and as nimble in this kind of capacity. So I think what they learned was like, there was a there were a bunch of issues with the way that the tender was handled. There was like this, you know, this long period between where, um, you know, offers need to be made and when offers would actually be, and, and bids and offers would be awarded. Uh, so that, you know, there's this built-in optionality that naturally increased the price that, uh, you know, m- commercial participants were, were willing to sell into the SPR at uh, it didn't help that it actually came after a month long or a half month long rally that that brought prices uh, you know to their highest level in in you know the last couple of weeks so you had a bunch of issues that kind of fed in there but at the end of the day you know I think the best answer for how to refill the SPR at 67 to 72 is just look at the curve right now and buy at the curve where 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 you can lock in those prices today and I think again. There's, I think there's competing constituencies within the administration, within the DOE, about whether or not the goal here is
3: to be... So buy yourself time by going out further in the curve.
0: Exactly. Lock exactly. in the price
3: and feel that if the price ever gets down there, there'll be enough impact from the buying, from the restocking, to uh, go on onside.
0: Well, and again, as I was saying as well, that the—, the most of the volume is in the front of the curve. So if the SPR was buying in size down the curve, they could actually move the price a decent chunk. Now, we don't know exactly how much, uh, but you could you could do a lot more down the curve than you can at the front of the curve, just, you know, definitionally. Um, so that I think alone, and again, if the goal here is to try and get particularly US producers to pump more in this environment, the best, cha- the best channel in my mind to do so is to increase their equity values. Because everyone's saying that the reason we're not drilling more, the reason we're not producing more, investing more, is because investors took a bath for basically a decade before COVID. Um, you know, there was massive, you know, historic levels of capital destruction. And now, uh, you know, equity investors in oil and gas companies are looking to finally make money after losing money for a very, very long period of time. Um, I think the best way to kind of make that 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 constituency whole is by trying to do things that raise equity values and and you always see like well can we do let let's try and reduce regulation here or whatever else and that makes it easier once they make the decision to actually you know spend the money but you know the challenge is, is that you need to actually get them to want to invest in the first place and then there's all these other issues downstream that we still need to work with but I think that first question is how do you get upstream oil and gas companies to want to invest in the first place.
3: How are uh, sort of the mega energy companies like ExxonMobil and Chevron and so on, how do they use this information? Does that make them more enthusiastic about continuing to drill, knowing that there'll be a, a potential floor in the price? Is there a way to play that in terms of investing in those, those equity markets? I think that there is reasonable
0: skepticism— within the oil market that the Biden administration is good for its word on this. Now, I am generally a believer that they are, that the Biden administration is trying its best to execute on this very, very new strategy. But I think there have been lots of comments and slips that have made it harder to take the Biden administration in good faith uh, on a lot of these issues. I think there's been a lot of animosity between the administration and the oil companies you're, you're, you're discussing there have been a lot of high profile kind of public letters that the CEOs of these companies have made um, you know sent to the White House and kind of published for all eyes to see. Um, so it has not been it has not been a great relationship and I think that yeah everything would be much better if there was better kind of blood between all parties involved. Um, so no I you know I don't I don't think yet that the promise to rebuy at70 dollars a barrel, is as good as actually realizing futures, you know, purchases today. I think that's the thing. Is that if if you cut out the the promise to rebuy at spot and just said we're actually we have purchased down the curve and look the curve is now flatter because of it and the in the back of the curve is now higher relative to spot than it was before. I think that is a very you can't argue with that. That is just a higher realized price in the market. Um, And the Biden administration doesn't have to worry about whether or not, you know, the industry is trusting them or not, or whether
3: or not you- Sounds a heck of a lot like the Fed. If people believe that the Fed can be effective, the market reprices automatically to- It's very similar. Yeah, I I I found the analogies are shockingly- this is I mean, I've always thought about
0: I mean, you know, you've always heard that like, uh, you know, Riyadh and the Saudi government has viewed themselves or, you know, people call them the central bankers of oil. I think the best comp is the SPR can actually be the Federal Reserve of Oil. Again, I just don't I don't know if there's the political will to do that because, you know, I mean, while monetary policy is certainly political, somehow people you know, manage to get even more haughty about releases from the SPR. And maybe that's just because in my neck of the woods, that's all that anyone ever talks
3: about recently. Well, well, how about the the kind of the libertarian, uh, the folks on the libertarian side, their angle, which is that a free and functioning market is the only way to ensure fairness, reward for profitable economic activity and so on. Uh, Now that what some of these people like Craig Perong and so on are arguing is that um, now you have huge distortions in say the crack spread, this that and the other, the refined products now, which used to be free, you know, now they're worried. Now they're somewhat tethered to this um, uncertain promise of purchases at certain levels. Um, how do you wrap your head around that? Is is that something where I should think, put my portfolio management hat on, and say this is just an event, a tradable event where I should be able to trade, I should be able to monetize that information in related markets, or do you have a more, um, not moral, but uh, I don't know what the word is, a more principle-based view on as to whether this is the right thing or the wrong thing that's going on, and whether it is creating unnecessary distortions?
0: Yeah, so I'm going to split the question in two. So I'll I'll deal with the SPR side first, and then the kind of crack spread question second, and the refining market. So I think we had discussed that a little bit uh on our last on our last call, but I think that uh, the what's happened crack spreads in the refining market is also historic in an entirely different way. So I'll split those in two. So first to the question of the morality of the SPR and whether or not it's good for the market. Firstly, the oil market has always had levels uh like many, many tranches of regulation, uh, both explicit kind of government regulation uh, as well as kind of monopolistic or, or cartelized organizations within the market that entirely, at least their stated goal, is to reduce the volatility in the market. Now, when you look at the historical kind of theory of why... OPEC and Saudi Arabia in particular would do this. And I think, you know, many people I think would be surprised to hear that the literature historically views Saudi Arabia as one of the most notable doves or price doves within OPEC, whereas some of the other producers, like let's say Libya, are much more keen to see higher prices in all environments. And the argument for why that is the case is that Saudi Arabia has massive, massive reserves of crude, and they're worried about the price destructive elements, not just of high prices, but of volatility itself. So if, you're, if, if the goal here is to try and uh, you know in, you know elongate to the maximum level possible for for Saudi state revenues, the oil age, they they want a reasonable price of oil. Now, what that is, let's say eighty to one hundred dollars, uh, and relatively low levels of volatility.
3: So what you're saying is, don't fool yourself. This is a market that has had price controls for decades.
0: Decades centuries. I mean oh, if, you centuries, back, if you look back if you look or at least the century if you look back at like you know early Rockefeller era and there was a much more explicit control of what was produced and then even after the Rockefeller era you had the Texas Railroad Commission which acted as the even more effective version of OPEC. So I think you actually you've had this in many in many capacities throughout all of history. And I think importantly this is at a period where the direction of oil seemed at least broadly on the demand side pretty known that demand was going to continue to rise, that this was an industry that was going to continue to kind of grow and sustain itself over time. People weren't worried about, let's say, like ExxonMobil as a going concern for the majority of this history. Now, I think the challenge with today is that with, with all of the discussion and the known urgency of the energy transition, now there's this question of like, okay, well, who's going to invest In in, in oil and gas supply, it's going to take hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars over the next couple decades of continued investment in fossil fuel supplies, even as we are transitioning our economies. I think that's a big that's a big you know open question. And with all the volatility, even from the oil producer side, it only reduces the kind of incentive to invest. Because, I mean, we're even seeing right now, so Sierra Week, which is the big um, the big energy conference at Houston, is happening right now. And everyone's optimistic about the kind of trajectory of oil right now. But I think everyone is reasonably also kind of suspect to be like, where are prices going to go? Because we were $130 Brent back in April of last year, and now we're at 80. And that was supposed to be in the year where we were supposed to see like massive, you know, unprecedented deficits, deficits in the market. How much do kind of market forecasters really know about where this is going to go? And I think the very frank answer is that no one knows where it's going to go. We don't know how much supply we're going to lose of Russia. We don't know what Chinese demand is going to do. And then from like five, 10 years from now, we don't know how successful energy transition policies are going to be at reducing this overall level of demand. So, and all this to say that I think in this moment of kind of heightened volatility, heightened uncertainty in the market, I think it, it actually, much of the puck lands at the feet of government here at trying to iron out some of the inevitable volatility that will be caused. Because the volatility will be bad for everyone, oil companies, consumers, the broader economy. So I think the goal here is to try and smooth out that period of energy transition. Um, And I think this is where we can actually go to the refining side.
3: Can I cut you off slightly? I know even though I raised the refining point, I'll cut you off just very briefly. So if I look down at all of the possible oil investments, buying and rolling futures, buying oil exploration company stocks, buying, um, you know, doing various strategies in the oil space, uh, convergence trades and so on. Are there, do any of these things benefit from sustained high volatility? Is there a way that you can make a long investment in something related to oil, to some segment of the industry where you can actually profit from this level of realized vol in, in the price?
0: Yeah, so this is where I will I will give my official disclaimer that I am not an investment advisor and I do not I do not suggest no recommendations here. Um, but but generally, based on my kind of like awareness and kind of following of the market, I think what you've seen is that oil traders, like the like the trading houses, have found this level of volatility exceptionally profitable. I think the stat was that the major trading houses made over a hundred billion dollars of profit last year. These are record-breaking years for for many of them. How did they do it?
3: roughly speaking so they'll
0: they'll they'll basically just play they'll they'll buy when the prices are low and then sell when the prices are high and and they know that this volatility is just you know if you look at the past year you know we've been pretty range bound uh ever since we came off that kind of high in april through june um and they basically just play both sides of it. And the, and the fact is that not only are, like we see the volatility manifesting at the headline benchmark level, WTI and Brent, et cetera, but there's even more volatility down the chain. And many of these companies are dealing with physical grades. So you're also playing the basis between, yeah,
3: the, yeah sorry. No, that's these are excellent points. But the thing that concerns me, not about your comment, but in general, is that I remember in 2006 and 2007, ARB funds that, do Paris trading or convergence trades in related companies. They said, we love volatility. We eat it for lunch. We're basically converting vol into alpha. But in 08, the vol just became too hot to handle. And so all these convergence trades where you're buying something cheap, selling something rich, and you get bigger opportunities, bigger edge, because the spreads become wider and the dips become bigger and the rises become higher. At some point, if the vol is too uncontrolled, everything falls apart. Is 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 this a problem that one should be worried about with oil as well? That yeah, you can make big profits if oil is whipping around, but if it whips around too much, all of a sudden you have that tail risk on the other side. What well, do you yeah. have any view on that? Yeah.
0: So we actually saw that last year um, when so when prices mega spiked, um, you know, back in March and April. I think many people thought oh, well, this is speculators. This is kind of people jumping into the market to speculate in the direction. But when you look at, again, I, I'm a big fan of looking at the commitments of traders' reports published by the CFTC and, uh, and ICE. Um, open interest in these contracts actually plummeted during that period. And what you saw was a lot of the major, you know, broker, you know, a lot of the major exchanges and stuff massively hiked margin requirements for these for these instruments. So it, you know, you saw a massive reduction in the kind of speculative uh kind of in open interest and broader open interest in the market. But it also made it harder, I was mentioning the physical traders earlier, it also made it harder for them to finance um the nat, you know, because most like these these traders don't trade this stuff unhedged. They buy a physical tanker and they hedge it immediately, right? All this stuff is locked in. But when you when you dramatically increase the price uh of like executing these hedges well, all of a sudden you actually have people hesitant to actually move physical commodity around. And this was back in but just you know late spring, early summer. This is a major concern in the market. And you had, you know, major strategists talking about like whether or not, you know, the EU or Washington should be directly subsidizing oil trading kind of hedging in order to keep these commodities flowing. Because back then, again, when and remember that people were most worried about like losing massive amounts of Russian crude from the market in terms of supplies. Um, you know, you're also worried on top of that, oh, well, maybe maybe you're actually going to lose a lot more than just Russian supply because no one's going to afford insuring and hedging these tankers to get the other crude, you know, to where it needs to go. So this is actually a major discussion. Now, that dip in open interest did last for the most of last year, although we've started to see it come back. And again, it makes sense that prices are actually, you know, for the most of the year, we've basically been range trading for Brent basically between like high 70s and low, uh, you know, sorry, uh, high 70s and, and high 80s and basically a $10 ban for most of the year. And I think that's finally starting to attract some of this speculation back into the market. Now, on the flip side, I think, now, I don't know if anyone else that follows the Commitments of Traders report was aware of the fact that we basically were without the Commitments of Traders report for a better part of a month because of a, a large hack that happened with one of the major uh, suppliers and of data, uh, kind of one of the, uh, one of the uh, firms that acts as like a uh, the plumbing that that translates and provides these uh, positions to these agencies and kind of aggregates them. So that actually knocked us off for a lot. And, and we were kind of you know all working blind for the better part of a month. The CFTC is still struggling, has still not actually caught up, but at least we have ICE has done it. So now we know with Brent, so WTI is still a bit of a mystery as to what's happening right now. But Brent, we know that we're actually near the highest level of uh, kind of speculative kind of positioning on the long side or, or net length um, as, a, as a share of open interest since late 2021. So in terms of this, the worry is that, you know, how do we push higher from here when you have this overhang of a lot of spec length? I typically treat that spec length as a contra indicator, that it's more likely that they're going to rationalize and we're going to fall back. My expectation is that we're going to need, you know, if we really want to head above $100 a barrel, for instance, I think we're going to need to be able to get to you know, 90 without multi-year record highs of spec interest. And then you're going to take that to the next level from there.
3: Got it. Now, let me give you an idealized question then, which is, let's say that every spec dropped out of the market. Some people need to hedge long and some people need to hedge short. What would the curve look like if there were no specs? Would it be steeper or flatter than it is now? My bet would be that it would be flatter.
0: Um... I think most of that spec is playing at near the front of the curve, not necessarily the prompt contracts, but let's say with, definitely within the first year. Um, it's hard to know exactly where they are on the curve at any given moment. A lot of the, you know, the CFTC doesn't
3: provide that granularity of the data. Let's even take in the front month. Would there be more hedgers looking to uh, protect against upside moves or downside moves? In this market right now, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, you
0: know, I actually I don't have a fantastic answer for that. I would need to look at like what the what the what what all the options contracts were doing at, at this exact moment. But I would say that the you know right now it seems like the bulk of activity is betting on prices being higher. There's mo- there's much more length in the market than there are shorts, and you've seen shorts rationalize out of the past couple of weeks. Uh, again, this is just Brent. I still don't exactly know what's happening in WTI until the data catches up. I think what you will see generally is that my expectation will be that eventually these speculators will take will, will take their profits, will trim their positions, we'll see prices drop back because of it. And then I think the hope for the bulls would be that we start to trade a bit higher gradually again. And then when you really start to get that next big, you know, whoosh up that's when the spec would step back in and add that kind of ammunition and that kind of fuel to push, let's say, back into the triple-digit territory again. But I think as we stand right now at, you know, where we, we're at eighty, just about $86 Brent uh, as, of, as of this discussion, and that's with very, very high levels of spec positioning in the market. I think that's a concern uh, for people that think that we're going to break above, let's say, sustainably above $90, $100 in the next couple of weeks or months, um, because I think that you would need to see that kind of next... Uh, cycle of like spec rationalization and then rebuild on the other side.
3: So the the tacit assumption is that specs are trend followers on average?
0: Generally, I think. Um, and I and I think that what you'd see. Yeah, I, I think that in, in the language of that, yes.
3: So in an upward trending market, if you take ste- uh, specs out, the trend doesn't build as strongly as if specs are in there. Yes, I, I, w- I would say that. Yes, I would say that's correct. Now, I wanted to give you a chance to maybe give a few insights about what you see in positioning, you know, in the COT data sets that you think is maybe not unique, but something that you really understand well that you may want to communicate to the audience here. I mean, things, mistakes that people make using the data or and or insights that you have in using the data more effectively.
0: Yeah, and I think this dovetails off a, a lot of what we, were just, what we were just discussing, but the I think the biggest mistake, and I think it's a very similar kind of common mistake to a misinterpretation of what the futures curve means and, you know, the flipping of backwardation and contango, which one is bullish, which one's bearish. Um, I think similarly, when I first entered the market, I think a lot of the general discussion of what, let's say, spec positioning means is that it's it's the, quote, smart money. So if if hedge funds, these massive masters of the universe, you know, uh, believe that oil is going to go high, who are you to disagree with them? Um, and you might as well think that, that is, that's most likely you know trajectory. I think over the course of my career, I've flipped on that almost entirely. I, I Now I believe that they are, I view spec predominantly as the marginal or kind of last, like final buyer or seller of these contracts. And that when you don't, let's say when you have a really, really short position, it's unlikely that you're going to get even further shorts added onto that so that the next likely kind of mean reversion move is to go more long on a net basis, which will all else equal pull crude up rather than down. On the flip side, like we have right now, when you're really, really long, all else equal, you know, a lot of the money that had been associated with oil is in long contracts right now it's not super likely you're going to get a major wave of new money coming in. What's more likely is that these, these individuals are going to take profits and they come back down. So I, I see it I see it as like a contra indicator, uh, particularly in terms of like the next most likely move. But I think importantly, I don't necessarily view it as causal. I don't think it's necessarily, it's, it's of questionable use in terms of, let's say forecasting the next move. But I think in terms of a situational awareness as a, as a risk management screen, I think it's useful to think that like, when you're really, really high, what's likely, like the next biggest move is more likely to
3: be down than up, and vice versa when things are really, really short. So you're saying I couldn't make money by just saying, okay, I'm going to take out the trend in open interest for specs. And then if I find that spec open interest on the long side is at its max levels, detrended, I buy puts or I go short. I'm just going to go against the trend because there's no more marginal buyer left in the market. Is that- a winning trade. I know it has huge tail risk because spikes can be enormous, but is that a kind of a medium case alpha trade or no? That is how. And again,
0: not a financial advisor. So, but I, I but I believe that's true, and I think it's particularly true in a uh, in a range bound market. I think let's say we're ripping higher then yeah, I think spec is going to join on for the ride. And if things are ripping higher because of this fundamental deficit in the market, I don't think that you should necessarily like bet against that trend continuing. I think in many cases, spec and financial players are going to be the ones that are on that trend first uh, before the physical market really takes notice and rides it on the way up. Um, But I think in a range-bound market, like we've seen, heck, for basically the past six months almost, I think that's been a much more reliable kind of indicator of where the the balance of risk lies, and I think this is actually a good moment. I think the the other debate that happens a lot in this market is a debate between you know who knows the oil market better or who's more right: financial uh, actors in the oil market or physical actors in the oil market. And I and you have both sides deeply entrenched. It causes very you know many many a a, a heated thread on Twitter, um, but. I think both are really important for different reasons. And I think that what you'll often see is, so I was mentioning earlier that you have like physical basis in the market that, you know, let's say Saudi- Are they both
3: important at the same time or at different times in terms of relative importance?
0: I think that the signals within each informs the proper context for interpreting signals on either side. So like for as an example, um, last year when we saw uh, prices and and through the latter half of 2021 into, let's say, the first half of 2022, you saw prices ripping really, really fast higher, as I think everyone now remembers. For much of that period, um, physical signals in the market, let's say the, you know, the official selling price discount or premium to major benchmarks, which are much more financialized, they were signaling that the market wasn't especially tight at that price level in that moment. So I think a lot of physical traders were saying, look, you know, West African crude is not, you know, these spreads are not, you know, they're not, you know, a signal of worry. If anything, they say the market's like relatively, you know, um, sloppy or, or isn't clearing as quickly as you'd expect in a bull market. But I think, again, I think that's probably true in a range bound market and that can be your signal uh, for, you know, let's say the balance of risk to the downside, that the physical bid just isn't there. But in a market where the entire world is seeing plummeting oil inventories, risks of Russia, et cetera, et cetera, then financial players are going to front run any physical reality. And I think that that doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong, it just means that they're faster. And I think that on the flip side, you know, financial players will, yes, naturally get way ahead of themselves in many of these moments and overshoot on the upside and the downside. But I think that you know when you let's say have a you know Nigerian differential uh, for you know Nigerian crude, let's say it's at a discount, which would normally be your sign that would be, or let's say a, you know a larger discount than normal, that would be your sign that the market's weaker than you would expect for that given price level. But if that discount stays stable over the period where you know headline Brent rallies forty dollars a barrel, then yeah, the market was probably slightly overvalued on a financial b- benchmark basis. At each step along there, but it probably just means the physical market was tr- was tracking up with you on let's say a two two week to month lagged basis. Because if you really thought that the financial market was blowing out well ahead of any physical reality, you'd expect the differential not to be stable, but would continue to widen as the physical market stayed where it was and the financial market like ripped ahead. And I think that's this some- you know, something in the market that you know people all will, will, will just really steadfastly say that oh physical knows best. I think physical knows a very particular chunk of the market. I think that's invaluable context for what you're seeing on market pricing. But I think both are really, really important for understanding uh, kind of what's happening
3: in the other side. Well, if someone told me where the dollar would be in two years, I think I could do pretty well trading oil. Right? Absolutely. Guaranteed. That's a financial issue. But I think on,
0: on the flip side right there, I think, you know, historically, we've always thought that, and I think empirically, you've seen that, you know, dollar up, oil down. But for the first half of last year, they both rallied. You had a rip roaring rally together for the first six months of the year. So I think even that, it's always it's always contextual, right? So I think if anything, uh, the rally last year in crude uh, for the first half of the year, viewed through a, like a dollar lens, was even more impressive than crude on its own. And I think, and again, I always I always really like zero in and like focus on the, you know, the quote context here, commodity context, it's kind of my thing. Uh, But I think all of these prices add context and color to what you're seeing in other elements of the market. So if the dollar is ripping higher on a week where crude is also ripping higher, then the dollar normalized price of crude is actually ripped even higher than that. And I think that's something that I think it's, you know, so let's say You know, and and you can have all these weeks where like the dollar is leading the way the whole way. And we've had a couple of those recently in like a week where there's nothing happening in oil markets. But you see a major, you know, CPI or PCE print or major unemployment print in the United States. All of a sudden, macro rates environment, that's all in control of the market again. And oil as a risk asset is going to trade along with that. And so, you know, the oil, oil trades intermittently between these different regimes based on what the major kind of concern in the market is at that particular moment. Um, like right now, I'm seeing the dollar is rallying this morning um, and oil is trading off right alongside with it on almost exactly the same timeline. I would say in this particular moment, the dollar is moving oil around, but at, you know, in other moments, they're going to trade in opposite directions. And I think that is just, you know, oil has its own stuff going on. But you don't have the constancy of information that allows you to take a a really strong view on it at any given point. So when that's not happening, then the rest of the the market is going to kind of tug oil around just as a financial asset.
3: Perfect. Now, the dollar can be defined in many ways. It could be the DXY, which is euro heavy, or it could be something that's trade balance based, or it could be commodity consumption based. For you, do you pay attention to that very much or? So I actually wrote a piece um,
0: last year just around the kind of height of this kind of US dollar strength and I called it Dollar Wrecking Barrel. Um, And this is, you know, this idea, thank you. uh, (laughs) And the idea here was essentially that. So DXY is obviously heavy euro, heavy advanced economies. I constructed essentially an index of um, currencies based on their share of oil consumption. And I think for the purposes of understanding oil, you can understand, and I think oil affects the dollar in different ways across different periods of time. But I think the most commonly accepted way that it affects it is that it changes the realized price of imports or purchases for countries around the world um, in terms of their kind of domestic currency. So that when, you know, um, let's say, uh, the dollar is ripping much higher relative to the Chinese renminbi or, or Indian currency, Indonesian currency or whatever else, all of these you know it becomes more expensive to purchase oil in those countries therefore all else equal demand will be less or at least demand growth will be less so i think that i think is kind of and when you look at the way that the dollar was trading higher for much of last year dollar strength was actually even more pronounced than something you saw let's say in the dxy and i think because you saw a lot of emerging market currencies hurt even more and you, and you see, you know, exceptional examples of this. And like, there were some like African currencies that literally halved in value versus the, you know, the US dollar or some other, you know, particularly smaller emerging markets were particularly hurt in these moments. Um, but I think on a whole, you know, let's say it was like, I don't remember the exact number, but let's say it was like 10% more strength than the DXY would have would have implied something in that kind of ballpark. And I think that, I th- and again, I think, I was surprised, and by the same time, not really surprised that there wasn't a huge kind of like intra-week or even intra-month deviation between this, you know, oil consumption-weighted dollar and DXY. Like they move, unshockingly, pretty closely together. But over the course of a year, you definitely see the cumulative effect was more heavy on the on the oil-weighted side than on the DXY side alone.
3: Perfect. Final question for you. Uh, of course, you can add something at the end, but um. How about thinking of the old North Star, gold? Do you find any value in oil versus gold? And if so, what?
0: I will be very honest. I don't spend any time looking at gold anymore. So I historically used to look at gold because when I was at Scotiabank, I was in charge of the entire commodity sector. And you would, you know, you copper gold ratios or, you know, oil, oil, uh, you know, oil dollar or, or oil gold or whatever. But I would say for me right now, it doesn't enter largely into kind of how I interpret the market. I, I, and I, I'm very frankly probably ignorant to some of the latest debates in the gold space. Historically, for me, it was always the, you know, you know, the inflation adjusted, you know, basically the tips yield was like the major driver of, of of gold value. I haven't tracked it recently, if that is still the case, but it still makes sense at least theoretically. So I think that there's going to be relationships there for sure, just based on the fact that oil is also trading along a, a macro. Theme for many of these weeks and many of these months, particularly as nothing else is happening in the, in the oil market specifically. But I would say that, no, it's not a, it's not a major input to kind of, to kind of my, my method, let's say. The final thing I'll say, and just to kind of very, very briefly come back to the refining question, because I thought it was actually really, really interesting, and I, and I wanted, to, wanted to close the door on that before we left off. So and I can't remember how much I mentioned on our last call, but oil the, while the crude market had a historic, volatile kind of roller coaster last year, in many cases, refining markets were even more exceptional in terms of the scale of the breakouts that we've seen. So, as an example, crack spreads or refining margins, which is essentially measured as the difference between, let's say, a barrel of diesel or gasoline and a barrel of crude oil that would be used to produce it. Normally, those differentials uh, trade, let's say, between $10 and $20 a barrel. At their heights, gasoline was at like 50 or 60, and diesel was at like 70 or 80 bucks a barrel of these crack spreads, exceptionally high levels. So that when you and I were seeing $130 Brent in June of last year or $120 Brent in June of last year, the realized price at the gas station, let's say in the U.S., was more like $180 a barrel crude because of that massive increase in the crack spread. And I think that is particularly hard for people to understand. And I think you actually saw a lot of U.S. politicians latch onto that as evidence of price gouging. Because look, oil prices aren't nearly as high relative to history as gasoline prices are. But the challenge, and the reason this happened, is the refining market really slow-moving, typically uh, not, and you know, it's pretty boring, <laughs> very frankly, historically relative to what happens in the oil side. But COVID changed that in a very meaningful way. That a lot of these facilities that were on their very final legs in the U.S. We're talking many of these facilities are like 100 plus years old. They saw all of this massive new advanced sophisticated refining capacity coming along in China, India, uh, you know, uh, Middle East and Africa and said, well, OK, you know, we're not going to invest more. We're certainly not going to build a new refinery because it's both expensive and particularly so in an advanced OECD country with heavy environmental regulations. Refineries are quite polluting uh, facilities just by the nature of what they do, They're basically gigantic chemistry sets. So that reality was basically, and we assumed that you know those US and advanced country refineries were going to fall off, and these you know new EM refineries were gonna come online, everything was gonna be, you know, fine and dandy. But COVID hit, these new EM refineries hadn't finished yet, and all the and all of these OECD refineries were faced with this choice I'm like, okay, do we kind of soft or kind of you know do a soft shutdown and kind of hope they'll come back up in like let's say a year when you know refined fuels demand recovers. Because I think I also remember in the middle of 2020, no one had any idea how long COVID was going to last, you know, as a real kind of overarching, you know, driver of global economy and fuel demand. So a lot of these, a lot of these refineries just closed up shop. Um, they did so well before the new refineries came online. At the same time, those refineries that still were coming online were mega delayed by years because, you know, all of these supply chains massively, you know, got tangled up all the labor, you're talking like hundreds, thousands of people that fly around to build these facilities. Well, all of a sudden, no one was flying or moving around the world. So all of these things, you know, really dramatically uh, mucked up that timeline. And I called it the collapsed bridge to the refining crisis, because you saw collapses on both ends. And now we're kind of traversing this like deep gully of these volatile high crack spreads, because you don't have enough refining capacity. On the flip side, the weird thing that's happened with this is that The global refining market doesn't typically operate at a super, super high level of utilization of capacity utilization. Refineries in the US do because they're really well tuned. They put out a lot of high value products and that's really good for them. But let's say a a refinery in, let's say, let's say Mexico that doesn't have the same level of sophistication, which I, by which I mean it has, it, it puts out a lot more lower value feedstock like naphtha or vacuum gas oil or heavy sulfur fuel oil. That if you had a coker or other downstream assets, like you have throughout most of the U.S. Gulf Coast and particularly a lot of the new Indian and Chinese refineries, that you can turn those, you know, lower value feedstock into higher value product. That you know, you know, so you were chasing those those less sophisticated we were chasing these record high diesel uh, crack spreads, and the process spitting off all of this excess uh, feedstock that no one else could process. So you actually saw, well, diesel prices and uh, diesel and jet fuel, which are very similar, um, rose to like record highs and stayed high for a long time. We're still high now, but we're at about $33 for, uh, for diesel right now in, in New York Harbor, um, down from 60, 70. So still high, double the normal, but you know half of where we were before. But because they're all chasing this for much of last year, you had you basically glutted and destroyed every other product market outside of that category. Heavy sulfur fuel oil, NAFTA, LPG, all of these things were tremendously oversupplied. And the crack spreads for them, instead of going to you know record highs, went to record lows in many cases. And you saw negative $40 crack spreads for high for high sulfur fuel oil. So so I think one of the best ways for, you know, people to track what's happening in the oil market is to look at the broad swath of product crack spreads because what you will see as the market begins to heal and we've already started to see is that those deeply depressed byproduct markets will begin to recover as you have more refineries capable of processing that that material into other things and you have more advanced refineries that are that are then taking up the slack and you're taking all of that pressure off of you know, uh, you know, let's say Mexican refineries. And as a great example, when U.S. refineries were making gangbuster profits last year off of these wide, initially gasoline, but predominantly diesel and jet fuel uh, crack spreads, Mexican refineries, and as Pemex reported, actually lost money refining because you had such a large, I mean, like in many cases, like a third of the, the yield of these refineries or like a quarter to a third is actually high sulfur fuel oil which is trading at 30 $40 a crack spread.
3: Yeah. Uh, what well, uh, Leads me to another question, very briefly, which is, you mentioned that in high vol regimes, uh, oil trading prop desks can do very well as they did in 2022. Do you have any idea, at least intuitively, as to whether they made the money on crude directly or whether they made substantial profits on these spreads? In terms, of the, in terms of the crack spread, I think most, I think some of these companies actually
0: do directly own, I'll be honest, I actually don't know if that, let's say $100 billion is purely trading profit, or if that would be blended with, let say, many of these trading companies also have refineries. Uh, and that is an invaluable piece of kind of market intelligence for them, in addition to being an actual asset that generates cash flow as well. So I'm sure that some of that's going to come from that. But in, to my knowledge, You know, it would mainly be um, the you know the crude trade, but also, I mean, they also would actually trade these products. Now, even if they weren't getting the refining margin on them, these markets were also deeply just trading the
3: spreads, basically. Yeah, in the futures markets and whatever.
0: And particularly, I mean, what what you could see, let's say heavy silver fuel oil. Let's say you didn't believe that heavy silver fuel oil would trade at negative four dollar crack spreads in perpetuity. Probably a good call. You could take a bunch of that and basically you know, that market was essentially trading in super contango. So you could take that, go float it off in a tanker in the middle of nowhere and wait for those prices to recover and then kind of pocket the profit back on the other side. So each, each of these products have their own, their own futures curve, their own supply-demand balance. So it's, the deeper you go down the barrel, it becomes like a fractal supply-demand balance web.
3: Oh, that's a great phrase. So the, kind of the upshot or the, the um, overarching theme here is that in the absence of a financing crisis, Trading outfits can make a huge amount of money trading convergence and spreads because they can carry the positions without fear of having their financing cut off.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and for any listeners that are really interested to learn more about this particular trading, you know, industry, there's a really, really good book published in the last year or two called The World for Sale by Javier Blas and Jack Farchi at Bloomberg. And there's also a fantastic book that I read first, and that that book is about kind of broadly a bunch of different trading outfits from, you know, Cargill on the the grain side, but deals a lot with the oil market just because it's the biggest commodity market by far. And then specifically on the oil and the kind of story of Mark Rich and, you know, that which for those that aren't aware, Mark Rich and Co. was like the initial oil trader that his firm, when it kind of gradually split up, became uh, Trafigura and Glencore, which are still to this day two of the largest global commodities traders in the world. And the book about him specifically and Mark Rich in the history is called The King of Oil, which is also a fantastic read. And I would say that anyone that wants a flavor of just how fascinating and how kind of buccaneering a lot of this uh, market becomes as you, as you get closer and closer to the physical side, I think those two books are, are invaluable reads for that.
3: Well, I'm waiting for you to write your book so you can Hook that on our show. <laughs> one day, but, one day. For now, I'm just going to hawk other people's books. <laughs> well, that's great. It's always a pleasure having you on. I hope to, hope to do it again soon. And uh, with that, I hand it back
2: to Niels. Thank you so much, Harry and Rory, for another delightful conversation about the inner workings of the SPR. There were quite a few takeaways, I thought, uh, that were very interesting. Uh, of course, the understanding of how different people perceive the SPR and the role it should play was quite informative, especially in the light of it having been halved in size in the past couple of years. Also, the very basic question about why it's all crude oil and not any of the products was quite fascinating to me. I also enjoyed the discussion about which part of the curve actually drives the price of energy. Is it the near term or is it the far out part of the curve? as well as the historic role of Saudi Arabia in controlling the price of oil. And finally, the part about how affected crack spreads have been in the past year or so uh, was super insightful. As I'm sure you can tell, we think energy and commodities in general are super important and critical to understand, and we'll do our best to bring you more great content in this area of finance. Make sure you go and follow Rory's and Harry's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from those who have been in the trenches for many years, and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continue. From Harry and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode, and in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.